The United States of America continues to be under attack every day of our lives in this time. But that attack is specifically taking place in such a way that our Bill of Rights and our Constitution are being suppressed, are being trampled underfoot. And this shows us exactly how seriously intent is the domestic enemy, the so-called Democrat Party, that in reality promotes the combination of Marxism, communism, socialism, and all such evil doctrines that can all be summed up in one neat package called globalism. It just shows us how serious they are in actually taking down the great American empire. And that absolutely must be done if the great global reset is to ever go into full effect. It simply cannot be done if America is not conquered. And so they're doing the, their very best to take us down. If this domestic coup against our constitutional republic is permitted to complete its cruel and evil mission, then America, as we know it, is absolutely finished. It's done. However, just as many people have begun losing hope, thinking all perhaps is lost, we see a strong resistance developing, and I could not be more excited about this. And that's because any movement that seeks to remove the people's God-given inalienable rights is a movement that is doomed from the very beginning, if only the people will stand up. Welcome to Unity Without Compromise with Dr. Steve LaTulip, your host. I have to tell you that my utmost intent on this radio show is simply to speak the truth, to speak without compromising God's word, to speak by revealing God's design for mankind, and therefore to reveal God's commandments to you and to me through the Bible. Because the Bible is what gave us America. The Bible is what inspired the founders of this nation to write such things as the Bill of Rights and the Constitution of the United States of America and the Declaration of Independence. So please understand that without the Bible as our source, as our standard of truth and justice and righteous living, we would not have the America that we have enjoyed for the past 230 years plus. Well, recently I've been discussing the fight that we are up against as we witness a barrage of wrongs that are taking place against our Bill of Rights. This is part five in this series, and it is the last part of the series, which means that today I'll be discussing the last five Bill of Rights, and so uh, perhaps I should get into that. I've already discussed Articles 1 through 5, and I've been exploring their weaknesses, their importance after summarizing them, and then defining exactly how they're being attacked and how we must fight to defend our rights as individuals. And today, I will discuss the last five articles in the Bill of Rights, 
but in a little bit briefer format, because I want to really get to the gist of it. And I think the last five amendments can really be summarized as far as how they are being attacked and what we really need to do to guarantee that you and I, as individual humans, continue to enjoy those Bill of Rights that constitute everything that we really are in America. And so I'll jump right in with Article 6 of the Bill of Rights. And remember that the first 10 amendments to the Constitution are exactly the same as the Bill of Rights. Article 6 states, in all criminal prosecutions, the accused shall enjoy the right to a speedy and public trial by an impartial jury of the state and district wherein the crime shall have been committed, which district shall have been previously ascertained by law and to be informed of the nature and cause of the accusation, to be confronted with the witnesses against him, to have compulsory process for obtaining witnesses in his favor, and to have the assistance of counsel for his defense. So, in summary, what that means is that Article 6 says that in criminal prosecutions, it, it actually guarantees a fair and speedy and legitimate trial. In other words, an open trial, open to the public, where you can have uh, friends or witnesses speak on your behalf. The importance of this is that each side of in, in a criminal case, each side was given an equal burden of investigating the case and presenting its own evidence and arguing each their side of the story in a public court setting. Now, the downfalls of this Article 6 is that the criminal justice system has greatly changed. I mean, it's been drastically changed and modified since the time that the Founding Fathers um, authorized the Bill of Rights and uh, certified um, the Constitution in uh, 1791. So things have changed a lot. And number one, what we see is, is that now we have a full-time professional police force. We have a CIA and an FBI on the federal scene, and every police department is now specialized. It's kind of like in the medical field where you have all these different specialists and you have very few people like the old country docs who kind of had their hands into everything and did a pretty fine job of it. But every police department has its homicide division and its drug enforcement division and its investigative team for this and for that. And they have their SWAT teams and so they've become very specialized. And now, actually, it's the police force that oftentimes does the actual investigating in a criminal case. It is not both sides of the parties uh, of the defendant and the prosecutor team. It is actually done in a formal way. And even the arresting and the prosecuting it has all been formalized. And that really has some significant consequences for us as Americans who are living under this system of so-called justice. For one thing, uh, one of the biggest downfalls is that we've seen an increasing complexity uh, 
and increase in expenses and a whole lot more time is required to accommodate a fair trial. And in many ways, it has become impractical, uh, impractical in carrying out. It's not expedient. And actually, because of this very burden, what do we see? Well, we see a lot of plea bargaining going on. And this has become quite popular because case loads just keep backing up. So if you're having difficulty getting your case heard in federal court, you could just imagine what it must be like in state courts and in civil courts where the, the burden of, uh, of a speedy trial uh, has lesser consequences. It takes a long time. Well, Article 6 simply states that you have a right to a fair and speedy trial and a public trial. Now, how is this being attacked? Well, first of all, as you probably know, if you have your eyes and ears opened, we see that the court has become very lenient in its interpretation of what they mean by a speedy trial. You see, that's one of the weaknesses or downfalls of the Article 6. It doesn't set down a hard period of time whereby a court hearing must be done. And it was probably a good thing, and maybe this was intentional, but we must always keep the intent of the Founding Fathers in mind as we interpret anything pertaining to the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. The right to a public trial seems also to be increasingly overridden for a number of reasons including issues of national security, issues of public safety, or even a victim's privacy interest. I mean, if a young woman or girl is raped, does she want all the details of that rape um, broadcasted to the world? So you can see where there are times when perhaps it's not really expedient or justified to have everything revealed in public. And I can understand that, but again, the intent of the public trial was to get the public involved so that they could know what's going on, and that could hopefully sway the, uh, the scales of justice so that they would be more balanced. Because when things are done in secret, as you know, things go awry real fast. Transparency is very, very important in anything pertaining to government, because as soon as you don't know what your government is doing, you can bet that something is going wrong. And we have seen that every step of the way in the last century or two. As soon as man is able to act on his own and not be held accountable, then a travesty develops always, always. So when trial information is held in a public place, or if it's held from the public, uh, that can actually influence the outcome. But in a free society, transparency is very, very important. The jury's power, in fact, to acquit regardless of the strength of the prosecution's case or to return logically inconsistent verdicts to mitigate punishment 
is actually something that is not well advertised. It's one of those things that are hidden from the public and hidden from the jurors themselves. Do you understand what I'm saying there? Jurors are not even advised about the sentencing consequences of the charges that the jurors are deemed to decide. And that has significance because if you don't know what's going on, then how can you rightly judge something? And it becomes ever more important because when you see that a justice actually still can largely decide the fate of one who is charged in a criminal case, um, if, he, if that judge can influence jurors by his silence, by the jurors being kept in the dark, then how can they rightly do their job? Said another way, when you have a Supreme Court justice who is biased or calloused, this could have grave consequences on the defendant. Now, we've seen a whole lot of bias and a whole lot of callous disregard for the Constitution just recently in the case that involved the question of whether or not vaccines could be mandated across the country because we have a puppet president who obviously has wanted that agenda pushed for some reason. Why a president is so interested in pushing a so-called vaccine, something pertaining to medicine, is beyond me, except that it's really not beyond me. It, when it makes no sense, look for evil intent and you will find the answer and the answers are there for us. But Article 6 specifically says that you have a right to a fair, speedy and public trial. Now, if the government, the federal government specifically, or even in the lesser courts, if they are attacking Article 6, the Sixth Amendment, how in the world do you defend that? Well, it seems quite impossible to change the Sixth Article without a change in legislation because it's taking place in the court. And should we pursue this? Should we try to change it? Should it be? Should the Sixth uh, Amendment be even updated to account for the many changes in procedures that now plague the system of justice? I mean, how would we go about doing that without a complete radical change in our Constitution? And of course, that has actually been suggested by some, and there is a movement right now to, to do that very thing. But that's beyond my topic today, so I won't go any farther. But let me just say that it is extremely difficult to challenge something pertaining to the justice system because the challenge comes within the D Department of Justice itself. And if the Department of Justice becomes corrupt, then we are definitely handicapped in trying to set it straight. For the remaining articles 7 through 10, I want to consolidate the discussion because the application of these articles actually has become very, very complicated. And that is due to the changes in both the interpretation and the application 
of these articles over the past 230 years that these articles have been applied to the Department of Justice. Specifically, when we look at how these articles are being attacked, however, we have to do what we can to defend them. But how do we do it? That's the question. It's not easily answered. The issues are very complex. And to defend these articles requires a lot of legal knowledge, which I don't have, by the way. I am not a legal scholar. I am somewhat of a victim of the system. But in order to change that, it requires a great deal of knowledge of the law, but therein is also the problem. It doesn't mean that these articles cannot be, be defended, but it requires that we always keep in mind exactly the intent of the founders when the articles were ratified in 1791. And so perhaps only one solution exists in resolving the issues of these abuses if they're in fact being abused. And that pertains to an earlier article that I have already discussed. Well, anyway, Article 7 states that in suits at common law, where the value in controversy, controversy shall exceed $20, the right of trial by jury shall be preserved and no fact tried by a jury shall be otherwise re-examined in any court of the United States than according to the rules of the common law. So in summary, there are two clauses here that are present in this article. One is called the preservation clause, and it establishes the types of cases that juries are required to decide. And the second is the re-examination clause, which states that no case that has been decided by a jury can be re-examined in any other court of the United States. The, word, uh, the words common law appear twice in this article, meaning now differs from what it meant when the article was written. Today, Common law actually refers to law declared by the judges. Now, that doesn't sound very common to me since it's just an individual's uh, interpretation of a law, as opposed to laws that were enacted by legislators, which is a group of people supposedly representing we the people. But you know how often that happens. So the importance of Article 7 is that the United States is actually... Uh, only about the only nation that still requires any civil jury trials uh, to be judged by juries. But in reality, juries in civil cases are extremely rare, less than 1% of all cases, in fact. And you don't get that anywhere out of reading Article 7, because it really does not specify whether it is a federal or a crime or civil crime or, or a criminal trial versus a, a civic trial. Um, it just states that we have a right to be tried by a jury, and we just don't see that happening. And that, that the fact that less than 1% of all civil jury trials are actually judged by a jury seems kind of contradictory to the intent of the Seventh Amendment. 
But we do have two main court systems in the United States. Those are the federal court system and the state court system. And somehow the United States Supreme Court has required civil jury trials only in federal courts. So that is potentially a problem. That means that the people who may have known you very well, including understanding your character, your intent, your lifestyle, they are not likely to have any influence on the outcome of your accusation of your crime. The shortfalls are fairly obvious in this because the issue of whether judges or juries should decide cases is really challenging because it's been disregarded. And sorting this out opens up a whole new debate about how much power the judge has versus the power the jury has, and particularly in state courts. In short, the Supreme Court says that your civil jury trial right is not a fundamental right. If you are not allowed a jury trial, that means that you are subject to the whim of an individual judge. And so it, it becomes a coin toss as to who the judge will be in your case. Uh, and that can determine the outcome, of course, of the case. And that is definitely a weakness pertaining to Article 7. How has it been attacked? Well, in a time when the nation itself is so strongly polarized, as we see now in America, and when the Constitution is being largely ignored, in many cases, at every opportunity, it seems, and when we have biased judges who rule on cases we are often, uh, that's a guarantee that fairness and justice will be swept aside in determining the decision of a federal case or a case of criminal activity. Again, the issue comes up of the federal government having too much power, power over state courts, and even the state courts can be a strong arm acting against we the people, because we have federal and state judges, but they are still individuals. And if they supersede a trial by jury, then your chances of having a fair outcome seems to me to be significantly diminished, at least I would say that. Well, the next three articles, articles eight, nine, and 10, uh, I'll summarize those and just briefly discuss these. I'll group them together, though, when answering how these articles can be preserved, how, uh, and they must be rightly interpreted. They must be defended against further abuse, but how we go about doing that is rather challenging. Article 8 is a very short article, and it says that excessive bail shall not be required or excessive fines imposed nor cruel or unusual punishments inflicted. Now, to you and me, that might sound pretty straightforward. I mean, how can you misconstrue that? In summary, it says that the federal government cannot impose excessive bail before a trial or excessive fines or punishment for a crime if convicted. Now, that, if, if applying the rules of common sense 
uh, to such a trial would rule, then this would be very straightforward. And the importance of this article is that it prohibits an act of unfair oppression by a powerful federal government. But the shortfall of Article 8 comes in trying to define what is meant by cruel and unusual punishment. What does that mean? I mean, we could debate this all day long, but the simple intent was to prevent torture of the accused, particularly torturing someone and trying to get a confession of a crime, right? It prohibits any barbaric means of punishment such as the stretching racks, thumb screws, bamboo shards under the fingernails type of thing, in order to get a confession. And that was something that was feared by the authors of the Bill of Rights. And cruel and unusual punishment might also include excessive punishment for a crime. And we have seen a lot of that recently, and it all depends on what side of the of the polls you're on. If you're a leftist versus a conservative, we've actually noticed that there is a distinct, um, a distinct difference in the way that people are punished. And it seems much, much harsher if you have a conservative mindset. I wonder why that is. And if you want to talk about excessive punishment for a crime, well, what does that exactly mean? Who determines what is excessive and what is not excessive? I mean, what about capital punishment? Is the death penalty to be considered cruel and unusual punishment? Well, some would debate it. And what about bringing back the chain gangs, hard labor as a punishment for crime? Is that cruel and unusual punishment? Well, I guarantee you any woke kid who's never worked a day in his life is going to swear by that being cruel and unusual punishment because mom is not there to take care of him. He might be actually forced to do something against his will. And that is a foreign entity to some people in America. You can see that the greatest shortfall is actually how subjective are the definitions of excessive bail or fines and cruel and unusual punishment. How are these abused? Well, we saw definitely some abuses taking place after the January 6th event where political hostages were taken in the DC gulags, notice that they were offered no bail whatsoever. They were being abused through prolonged solitary confinement, poor nutrition, absolutely filthy living conditions, and even physical abuses by guards. How did they get away with that? Whatever happened to Article 8 that prevents such cruel and unusual punishment? And what about bails? Do you remember the bail amount that was set for Kyle Rittenhouse? Now, Kyle Rittenhouse was a 17-year-old who had no prior convictions on his record. And yet he had a $2 million bail set for his case that lasted over a year. So you can imagine if he could not make bail, he would have been in jail for all that time, losing a year of his life. While 
Daryl Brooks, a male with multiple violent felony convictions, was released on just $1,000 bail just two days before his Waukesha massacre. Now, that is clearly an Eighth Amendment violation, blatantly a violation of justice. And then after Daryl Brooks went on his rampage and murdered six people, maiming many others, finally, a $5 million bail was set. Now, Brooks was broke, right? That guy didn't have any money. Was this excessive bail for him? Well, not necessarily. I think they wanted him not again released because the public was pretty angry about this. But you can see how the abuses of the Eighth Amendment can result in loss of life, can result in crime and injustice galore. Whether or not you're guilty or innocent, it makes no difference. The abuses affect everyone, and ultimately they affect you and I because we are dependent upon our government to simply do the right thing. And that's why the Constitution was written. To do the right thing, to not overstep your boundaries, and to abide by the wishes of a righteous people. When that happens, a country flourishes. I'm going to take a real short break and return in just a moment. Hello, this is Lieutenant Randy Sutton, the host of Blue Lives Radio, the voice of American law enforcement. I am a 34-year police veteran. I am also the founder and CEO of an organization that stands behind injured and disabled law enforcement officers. It is called The Wounded Blue. Our website is thewoundedblue.org. We have produced a film. It is an important film. I urge you to watch it. The film details what happens when a police officer or law enforcement officer is shot or stabbed or beaten or disabled, seriously injured in the line of duty. Most people think they are taken care of medically and financially. The reality may be quite different. It is called The Wounded Blue, Service, Sacrifice, Betrayed. The film is available on Amazon, iTunes, and the Microsoft Store. In 2008, the amount of concentrated time people could spend on a task without becoming distracted was 12 seconds. Five years later, it was only eight seconds, one second less than a goldfish. If you find yourself always distracted or having trouble recalling information, you're likely to fall behind in the demanding, fast-paced 21st century. In other words, brain performance is more critical now than ever. Boost your brain power with Healthy Cells Focus Plus Recall. Science-backed nootropics to sharpen focus, concentrate longer, enhance recall, improve mental speed, learn rapidly, and be more alert. It's a pill-free brain supplement made with maximum absorption technology, designed to feed our brains at the cellular level. Take it for a test drive. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order of Focus Plus Recall. That's HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD for 20% off.
the spirit of American liberty and justice is woven into the soul of America out loud. We are the voice of a nation, the American nation that is. This is Malcolm Out Loud. I invite you back to AmericaOutloud.com where the fight for liberty and justice continues. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Welcome back to Unity Without Compromise. This is your host, Dr. Steve LaTulip. My radio show airs at 12 and 5 on Saturday and Sunday. That's Eastern Time. And then it goes to podcast, and it can be listened to on the America Out Loud platform. I have also written a book titled Unity Without Compromise, and it is a book about why the Bible is so essential for unity as the true American standard of justice and righteous living and why it must therefore be correctly interpreted. And I talk about how to do just that. I discuss some hard issues in that book, that issues that actually divide us as Christians and as Americans. And then I finally discuss how we can join together to become truly one body a body of Christians and a body of Americans without compromising sound biblical principles, which results in not compromising principles of freedom, such as the Bill of Rights. Well, Article 9, the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. What does that say? It says that rights retained by the people has a priority, even despite what has been written in the Constitution. Now, there are four rival interpretations I have read, but I'd like to just pretend that words do have meaning. And that means that an average American thinking citizen might at least have some idea of what is meant by this article. If we can do that, then perhaps we can actually understand why the founders considered this an important amendment to the Constitution and a right of the people. The Constitution does spell out specific rights of the people, but it does not spell out all human rights. It's pretty impossible to do that to list every last detail of what is right and what is wrong. Remember that in the Old Testament, the Jews had 613 laws that they had to follow, and trying to follow them was impossible. And God knew that, and it was a lesson for mankind to learn before the coming of the Savior. And that's the purpose of the Old Testament in a nutshell. But because it would be an impossible task, to delineate every last human right in the Constitution, the rights that were not spelled out in the Constitution are not to be considered less important than the ones that are delineated. And just because these rights are not listed does not mean they are not important. If they are specifically declared 
in the Constitution, then there's no problem identifying them. But there's other rights that people do have. And these other rights should not be denied people simply because they are not specifically incorporated into the Constitution. That's Article 9 in a nutshell. Why is it important? Because the government cannot tell you that you aren't entitled to other human rights just because they are not specifically mentioned or defined by the Constitution. I don't see how more straightforward that can be, but um, as I've said before, it takes sometimes a scholar, and in this case, a legal scholar, to confuse the issue. And so the issues have been confused, and that is always the particular shortfall of nearly every article. These other rights retained by the people is left to the discretion of the people or the state. Now, that can be a problem. It can even be a tyranny of the masses if the people decide that they have rights that really should not be rights. And if they really should not be rights of the people, then who says so? See, that's why we need a specific common standard that has to be applied to these other rights. Otherwise, it's just a can of worms. And it becomes very subjective to one's opinion. One's frame of reference determines what defines a human right if you don't have a clear-cut standard. If you're referring to God-given rights, then where are these rights to be found? Well, beyond any doubt inarguably they could be found in the Bible, upon which the Judeo-Christian standard is based. But if that standard is forsaken, then the Ninth Amendment becomes nothing more than a, quote, inkblot, to use the term that a failed SCOTUS uh, nominee, Robert Bork, once used to describe it. Now, in my opinion, that's kind of weak. How can you call any article of the Bill of Rights nothing more than an ink blot. In other words, something that could not be understood or interpreted or revealed. I have to disagree with Robert Bork. And I recall Robert Bork was a man um, of some renown. He was well-respected. But when he made that statement, um, that's kind of scary for someone who is about to be considered for a supreme, being a Supreme Court justice. But because the exact boundaries of the Ninth Amendment are undefinable, Justice Scalia actually argued that the Ninth Amendment has no judicially enforceable legal impact. Okay, what does that mean? Well, he's saying that it can't be brought to bear on any case in court. How is the Ninth Article attacked? Well, while these enumerated rights of the Constitution, you know, the ones that are written in ink, uh, may be as inalienable as the enumerated rights or the unenumerated rights, uh, if these cannot be clearly identified as rights, then the point is moot. Then Article 9 does become an ink block. Some claim that free health care, for example, and free education are rights. And how does this compare with, for example, the right to work and to support one's family? Is there a priority here? Is one really a right or is it an excuse for slovenness? 
the right to preserve one's own health. What about that? To preserve your own health as you see fit. Is that a right? Do you have a right, for example, to reject someone saying that you need to be vaccinated? Or what about the right of a parent to decide what their children's education should entail or not entail, such as critical race theory? Do parents have God-given rights? Where's the answer found? The answer is found very clearly in the Bible. It is unmistakable. Article 9 becomes a whole lot more important than just an inkblot if you have a true standard to back up the Bill of Rights. And unfortunately, that is what Bork forgot. How is Article 9 being attacked? Lots of ways. The rights of an individual are determined by God. They are therefore considered inalienable, but they are considered inalienable only if you are a respecter of God, of the creator of his entire creation. You would think that to some degree, even apart from the Bible, some of this stuff would be common sense, wouldn't you? But whenever was common sense really common, it never actually has been. So these are some of the Ninth Amendment issues. But look how hard it is to actually preserve actual rights retained by the people. How hard it is to prevent abuses, even by the people who prefer to be lazy and selfish and greedy because they want to claim that they have rights too. And that is the biggest problem with Article 9. It requires a fundamental understanding of an unquestionable standard. That standard actually existed at the time that the Constitution and Bill of Rights were written. That standard seems to be gone now. Finally, we have one other article, and that is Article 10. Article 10 states that the powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. In summary, the powers of the government are limited to those powers allowed by the Constitution only. The powers of the government are limited to those powers allowed by the Constitution only. Why is that important? Well, it, it emphasizes a resounding theme throughout the constitutional document and the Bill of Rights that the federal government's power is supposed to be limited and it shall not supersede or interfere with the power of the people in determining their own local governance. 
But Article 10 has a shortfall similar to Article 9. The 10th Amendment says, look to the enumerated powers of each branch of federal government as written in the Constitution. Vagueness in its application is the problem. Where are the boundaries set for the federal government to preside over state governments and individual rights? How has this been abused? Well, actually, you'd think this was another pretty straightforward article that most people with common sense would appreciate and understand. But since about 1976, the sovereignty of states has been challenged increasingly by the federal government entities. That means that the federal government has been gradually becoming stronger and stronger and stronger. And that's a problem with a free nation. When the federal government seeks to use the 10th Amendment as a means of enforcing federal regulations on state governments, then you have overreach of the federal government. And there have been multiple cases where this actually has been applied with regard to uh, employment rights and so forth. Um, and it's very hard to draw a line between what the federal government should impose on the people and what the state governments should do. We see this very problem when it comes to deciding on issues of abortion. Look at how the abortion issue has been interpreted in various ways by the states. And look at what happened recently when our so-called inserted President Biden um, it's decided to challenge the state of Texas when it declared that abortion is wrong. Well, it creates a great big problem. And how do we right the wrongs of such articles when they are abused, specifically when they are so vague and cannot be fully understood because of that vagueness, unless you have a foundation of a standard to support it. You can see how the Bill of Rights is absolutely critical to our survival as a free nation. The Bill of Rights was specifically intended to guarantee that all human beings are treated like human beings, as individuals created in God's own image, and for that very reason to be granted certain inalienable rights based on respect, based on a right morality, based on fairness, based on peace and dignity. What could better unite us all than ensuring that all men are created with an equal opportunity to prosper, to enjoy life, to pursue things that bring our own individual happiness and fulfillment. This is the whole purpose of the Bill of Rights. In all its glory and wisdom, the Bill of Rights is still, however, a man-made document, and we cannot forget that. These are not writings 
by the finger of God. The Bill of Rights is not a perfect document by any means, but it is a functional document. And by that, I mean that it is just as powerful now as it was then when it was first written by the founders, if only we will subject ourselves to that one true standard. But apart from that, we're going to have a bit of a time of it. We have to allow it to be interpreted by the intent of its authors. And that's where the trouble is created. If we also acknowledge the presupposition that the God of the Bible is the creator of mankind, and therefore the author of our righteous standard and the conductor of our way of life, then America is going to thrive. And that's exactly what it did for all these years until we finally set aside that standard. And it wasn't just a one-day decision. It was an infiltration. It was a slow coup. And that coup is now busted wide open. And they are seeking to get rid of the Bible, to close the churches. You must destroy all thoughts of morality if you are going to overthrow the Constitution and the Bill of Rights because they are mutually exclusive. If we acknowledge the presupposition of God, then we have something to stand on. And this is something that Alexis de Tocqueville, that French historian who wrote his four-volume work called Democracy in America, he, he recognized how important it was the impact of religion on Americans. And when he said religion, what he meant was Christianity. And that was very obvious in his writings. If you have never picked up that book, Democracy in America by de Tocqueville, um, please do. There actually is an abridged version. It is excellent reading, and it is so worthwhile to hear the comments that this Frenchman made when he came to America to look in the early 1800s, to actually look at was what was happening in America, to understand how we had risen to power in such a quick time. And Alexis de Tocqueville expounds on so many truths that are just beautifully stated in his writing. And yes, they are common sense. To quote uh, him a few times, once he said, stated, and this is in the book, everybody feels the evil, but to no one, but no one has courage enough to seek the cure. And that's what we're struggling with today with regard to Corona mania. Alexis de Tocqueville also stated, when I refuse to obey an unjust law, I do not contest the right of the majority to command, but I simply appeal from the sovereignty of the people to the sovereignty of mankind. If you realize that Tocqueville was actually talking about a common decency that is shared among all people in all nations and realize what the French people had gone through under their tyrannical rule 
multiple times over, he understood and appreciated what we had in America. And he stated also in the third quote that I will state, it is not an endlessly expanding list of rights, the right to education, the right to health care, the right to food and housing. That's not freedom. That's dependency. Those aren't rights. Those are the rations of slavery, hay and a barn for human cattle. Now, Alexis could have written that yesterday, and the application is astounding today. But he wrote that in the early 1820s to 30s. So where do we go from here? America is in a state of turmoil. We are now finally seeing an uprising. When I began this series, what I really tried to show is that our Bill of Rights has been trampled. It has been mystified. And it has been ignored, perverted, and desecrated by a league of ungrateful benefactors of freedom who not only don't appreciate the precious gift bestowed on us in the form of the Constitution, but who no longer even recognize our freedom, our liberty, as the pearl, the very pearl of great price that is sought out by a completely beleaguered and oppressed world. The rest of the world wants what America has. And thanks to social media and thanks to our world becoming so small, the people around the world have seen firsthand what we have. They've seen it in communist China. They've seen it in Russia. They have seen it in South America. And I am telling you, they want what we Americans have. But unless we stand by these rights that we claim to have as our own, these documents that guarantee that we will be treated as respectable human beings, then we'll be lost. We'll be as lost as the rest of the world. And we will certainly lose those rights. And this is what we are seeing when we are told by a federal government to mask up on public transportation or to present a vaccine passport upon entering a public or federal building. Every single time that we comply, we empower a federal government that has gone bad. And we mustn't do that. Unless we challenge them, they win. And I think people are finally starting to realize that. This is the importance of the Freedom Truckers Convoy. Look at what is happening to our Northern brothers in Canada, our patriots who are saying, that's it. We are stepping in and we are taking back our country. You know, I am proud of the Canucks, the French Canadians, from which my family came, are showing themselves to be a freedom-loving people. I so greatly appreciate that. I respect them. 
And I can only hope and pray that Americans will do likewise. It's called a fight for freedom. It's called fighting to get back the freedoms that we have already lost because we have already lost our free republic. We've got to overturn some things. We've got to become a nation under God once more. We've got to become a people that says with sincerity, in God we trust. Because God's words are so precious to freedom and to righteous living. There are consequences when we turn away from that. And Americans still have not recognized the folly of falling away from God and from God's word. And because of that, because of this, this apprehension to acknowledge Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior for fear of offending others of other religions, we've got to get over that. We have to get over that quickly or we are going to be as lost as the rest of the world. The world is looking to us to take a stand. Now, where this all ends, God only knows. But to be sure, if you and I do rise up and disobey unlawful mandates and claim for ourselves self-evident rights as defined in the Bill of Rights and founded on the Bible, then freedom is certainly going to be here to stay. And that's what I want. You've been listening to Unity Without Compromise with Dr. Steve Latulip. I do pray and hope that you will rise up and start fighting this barrage of wrongs against our Bill of Rights. Because when we do that, we win. And I hope that we will all be soon shouting from the rooftops, God bless America. May he shed his grace on us once again. Thanks for listening. Adieu.